Well, good morning, Redeemer Church. It is great to see everyone and to worship with everyone this morning. Um, I would like to ask um, if we could bow one more time in prayer before we open up the word. Father, we pray that you will minister to our hearts right now through the reading and preaching of your glorious, beautiful, powerful, saving and sanctifying word. Do your work right now, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Jesus of Nazareth is um, really the most controversial, revered, reviled, mysterious, maligned figure who has ever walked the face of the earth. And the question really for everybody is, what are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to revere him or are you going to revile him? Are you going to try to understand him more? Are you going to stand off in a distance and say, I don't really know what that's all about, but I don't really want to have anything to do with it. I'm afraid of what it might suck me into. Are you going to reject him or are you going to worship him? He is the most controversial figure who has ever walked the planet. And everybody who comes in contact with him must ask the question, what am I going to do with Jesus? And over the last few weeks, we have been seeing that Jesus is this amazing man who has the power of God. He has friends like everybody else has friends. He has close relationships of love like people have close relationships of love. And yet he possesses one thing that everybody else doesn't possess, and that's the very power of God. And so over the last few weeks, we've seen how Mary, Martha, and Lazarus have, have, uh, have been in a love relationship with him. And then Lazarus gets sick, and Mary and Martha send for him, and he says, well, um, you know, this is not going to end in death, and um, don't worry about this, and it's okay, God will be glorified through it all. And ultimately, within a couple of days, Lazarus dies, and they bury him. And four days go by, and Jesus is nowhere to be found, and you're asking yourself the question, if he's really that close of a friend to these three, why didn't he come in the first place, and why hasn't he come now? And ultimately, Jesus comes back into town, into Bethany, and ultimately, he goes to the tomb of Lazarus, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus is raised from the dead after being a dead man for four days. And the response to that is what is significant. And we saw it last week because there was a group of people who rejected Jesus. They didn't deny the fact that he raised him from the dead. They just denied the fact that they didn't want to... They didn't want to worship him. They didn't want to serve him. They didn't want to bow down to him because if they bowed down to him and served him, then they would have to give up an allegiance to their own power, their own prestige, their own influence, their own kingdom. And so they don't want to do that, and so they reject him. And then we saw a beautiful picture of worship in Mary at the banquet who bows down and gets on her hands and knees and takes this unbelievably expensive perfume ointment and pours it on the feet of Jesus and then lets down her hair and and just wipes his feet with her hair because she is grateful to Jesus. She is in awe of Jesus. She is in amazement of Jesus. She is worshiping Jesus at that moment. The church, where we landed last week is that 
in our day and time, you can either reject Jesus or you can revere him. And in rejecting him, it might not necessarily look like you're going and telling the authorities and that they've got to do something about it. What it looks like oftentimes is, uh, I'm just going to ignore him. Or I'm going to explain away his miracles and his, and his works and his life. Or I'm going to um, give him lip service, but I'm not going to give him life service. And then what we said, that if you're going to really revere Jesus, if you're going to worship him, if you're going to give him all that you are, then you're going to be in awe of him daily. You're going to run to him on a daily basis and you're going to talk to him in prayer. You're going to listen to him as you read his word. You're going to bow before him and you're going to say, my life belongs to you. Everything that I am and everything that I have belongs to Jesus because you are the resurrection and the life. And if I'm ever going to have real life, it's going to be in you. And that's exactly what Mary displayed for us. So we left off last week with either reverencing Jesus or rejecting Jesus. Today, we want to look at chapter 12, verses 9 through 19. The title of the message is, He is the Misunderstood King. He is the Misunderstood King. Let's begin in verse 9 and go all the way down through 19 in our reading. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of Him, but also to see Lazarus, whom He raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of Him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel! And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Church, in these verses here, we really see two sections. The first one is small. The, the second one is larger. And the first section is the plot to kill Lazarus because of Jesus. And then the second section is the plan to crown Jesus because of Lazarus. If you wanted to shorten it, you could simply say the plot to kill Lazarus and the plan to crown Jesus. And that's what we see in verses 9 to 11. We have the plot to kill Lazarus. And so the, the crowd, this large crowd, and there are many different crowds in this passage today, church. There, there, there are really six different groups of people in these 10, 11 verses. Okay, And so I'm not going to go down and share exactly what each one of them are, but as you see, there are multiple different crowds who are around the person of Jesus here. 
And this first crowd are the ones who are kind of the Jerusalem area dwelling Jews who hear from others about Jesus and what he did with Lazarus. And the reason it is so particularly exciting and mysterious is because, you know, there were people who died, quote unquote died, and buried, and then kind of came back from the dead, mainly because they would bury people on the same day that they died. And a lot of times they would be mistaken and the person wasn't actually dead. And so they would be carrying them to the tomb and all of a sudden he'd start squirming, you know, and, and everything. And they're like, what is going on? In reality, you know, they would have been in a coma or something else, just been unconscious, and they thought he was dead. And in, in fact, there had been there were multiple accounts of people who came out of a tomb after, you know, 16 hours, 18 hours, 20 hours, etc. But nobody had ever come back from the dead after 96 hours. Never happened. But here, everybody knew when Lazarus had died. And everybody knew that when he was buried. And then he comes out of the tomb a hundred hours later. People are, are just amazing. So they, they come to Jesus in Bethany to see this man who has raised Lazarus. And then to see Lazarus himself. But when so many people go out to him, the chief priests... These religious leaders, these Jewish power people. So we, we can't not just kill Jesus. We've got to kill Lazarus too. Because if this man keeps walking around and he tells his story, then everybody's going to leave us and they're going to flock to Jesus and we're going to lose all of our, our equity with the folks. And look at verse 11. They are so concerned about people believing in trusting in Jesus. So they make this plot to kill Lazarus. Now that, that just tells you the dark, twisted, depraved nature of rejecting Jesus Christ. That you are willing to go so far as to kill a man, an innocent man who had died because you simply want Squelch or squelch the crowd from leaving your power and your sway. Now, now the text unfolds to us this, this plan to crown Jesus because of what he's done in the previous three years and specifically what he's done with Lazarus in the previous few days. And so that's 12 and following. So the next day, they, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now I said last week, and I'll tell you again, that there was likely about 100,000 people who lived in Jerusalem during this time. But whenever Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles came, the, the city swelled to a population of well over a million. Some accounts, I think it's Josephus, even say that there were 2.5 million people in Jerusalem at certain times and at certain Passover feasts throughout the years. But certainly there are over a million people who are gathered and they're packed into this city. There are people everywhere that you look and they hear about all the things that Jesus has done. Now remember, he's got quite a reputation that runs from Jerusalem and Judea all the way through Samaria and up into Galilee for sure. And people are telling stories about him, uh, true stories, that he raises the dead, he makes the blind to see, he makes the deaf to hear, he feeds 5,000 men with just a few uh, loaves and fish, and, and he does these unbelievable things. And some have even said that he walks on water. 
And so all of this stuff is, is being filtered into this crowd of a million people. And the last thing that they've heard is that he has literally raised a man from the dead. And that same man is walking around area. You've got to see this. You've got to hear this. And church, what we need to understand contextually is that the Jewish people had been persecuted and defeated multiple times over the past 500 years. And there have been numerous foreign leaders who have come in and have uh, killed, taken captive, and destroyed the, the Jews and their, and their city and their places of worship. It was a little over 100 years ago at, at this time where there was this revolt that happened. Uh, the Seleucids had come in, Antiochus Epiphanes had had uh, come in and, and with this strong right hand and this military force had defeated Jerusalem, had come in and desecrated the temple, and the Jews were highly upset about this. And, and there was this particular family who um, ultimately came to known as the Maccabeans. And this leader, Judas Maccabeus, had led a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes and all of his military men. And, and they came back and he seized the temple again. And he cast out all of these these foreigners and this foreign military. And they said, we're going to have real worship here. And they killed a bunch of these military foreigners and, and drove out all the folks and they built up worship again. And, and they basically held this nationalistic type of mentality the Jews did. And said, we're taking back what's ours. And listen to this, they printed their own money at that time, the Jews did. And on the, on the front, the, the cover of one of the coins was a big palm branch. Because palm branches represented victory. They represented victory. And so palm branches represented a nationalistic, victorious victory of the Jews over their enemies. We should know that as we walk into this text. Because what, what happens when they hear that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, verse 13? They took branches of palm trees. They went and cut them down. They went and picked them up off the ground. And they went out to meet Him. Now, you should also know that whenever, whenever victorious kings, militaristic kings, would come back from a conquering expedition, in the Greek language and in various Greek writings, that same exact phrase is used in extra-biblical accounts that they went out to meet Him. In other words, the people of the city, the citizens of the kingdom, would go out to meet their conquering king. And now John uses that exact same phrase and says they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet this Jesus. And what did they cry out? Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. That word Hosanna, coming right from Psalm 118. And during these weeks of, of Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jews would constantly be reiterating and they would have memorized and sang and, and, and talked about Psalm 113, 114, 115, 116, 117, and 118. Those are the Hallel Psalms. And so in Psalm 118, around about verse 25 and verse 26, it says, Hosanna! And that word means save us now. Save us now. And so, 
They've thrown out the palm branches for their victorious king. They have gone out to meet their victorious king. And now they are screaming out, save us, save us, save us. And what we need to understand is this is not hundreds of people. And this is not merely thousands of people. This is tens of thousands of people who have gone out outside the city streets of Jerusalem and are welcoming in their militaristic, victorious, conquering king that they've all heard words about. And what does Jesus do? He finds a donkey, a young one, and he sits on it. And John adds in right here, because it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. I think we want to make two observations here, at least. The one is, what would you expect a conquering, victorious king to come riding into his city upon? A stallion? A war horse? A chariot? That's what you would expect. Instead, he gets on a donkey's colt that no doubt was so small he would have to lift up his knees so that his feet would not drag the ground on it. We have uh, at our house a couple of what are called Jerusalem donkeys, and they are fairly small. And so we look out every, uh, every day at these donkeys, and they are not nearly the size or the beauty or the renown of a big, large war horse or stallion. All right, so we're expecting this mighty horse, this war horse, and he comes in on a donkey. And so we have to ask the question, why? In our observation, why would he come in on a donkey? And the answer really is twofold. The first, John actually tells us, in order to fulfill what was written about the Messianic king. He, he's, he is a king who fulfills what God has promised that his king is going to be like and that his king is going to do. And so Jesus grabs the donkey's colt in order to fulfill God's promises about the Messiah. But God has made these promises about the Messiah for a reason. It's not merely random. Zechariah 9 verse 9 actually makes that statement about the Messiah who's going to come in on this donkey's colt. But the reason he comes in on a donkey's colt is because before he is a conquering king, he has to be a crucified king. Before he is an exalted king, he has to be a humble king. Before he is a king in power, he has to be a king in lowliness and servanthood and servitude. And so he comes in on this donkey's coat to demonstrate the kind of king that he is in this moment. And so, this has to be a most confusing, and possibly even um, oh, awkward sight. Tens of thousands of people lined up on each side of the street. Some are throwing down their coats, their cloaks, their clothes, 
and some are throwing down palm branches, and some are waving the palm branches in the air, waiting for this victorious king, and you're thinking you're going to be looking up at this grand chariot, you're going to think you're going to be looking up at this 17-hand tall, big horse, and in reality, you're actually having to look down at this man whose knees are, are up so that his feet won't drag the ground on this small little donkey. Really. But it just doesn't quite fit, does it? It doesn't seem right. And people are going crazy. They're all excited. And then there's that. And John doesn't tell us the end of the procession, the end of the parade. I know Mark tells us when we studied that a few years ago, it was so interesting because after he came into town, he then just kind of walks back to Bethany and spends the night at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house. Really, really unique. But look down at verse 16. The disciples are confused. They don't understand these things when they see it. Like they know, they have this catalog of Jesus' teaching, His acts, His miracles, His his statements about who He is. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the great I am. Before Abraham was, I am. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. They've got this paradigm of His teaching about His identity. They've got this paradigm about all the signs that he's committed. He's taken water and made it wine. He's, he's uh, raised dead. He's made blind to see. He's made lame to walk. He's, he's, he's fed a, a whole hungry people and all of that. He's, they see this power. They've watched him walk on water and get inside their boat. They, they know how powerful he is. They know the power of his teaching. And then they see this and they're like, we just do not understand. Now John says this after the fact. Because then he says, you know, after... Jesus was crucified, risen from the dead, revealed to them in His resurrection body, then it all started making sense. All the prophecy fulfillments, all the works, all the things that He did and demonstrated Himself to be, it was like an aha moment. And John is saying we had an aha moment because in the moment of it happening, we were so confused and we misunderstood the reality of what was going on. Now look at verse 17 and following. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Man, they were telling everybody. They were telling everybody about it. And and I think that we can can learn a couple of things here, church. Um, John does not describe the quality of their faith in Jesus. He doesn't describe the depth of their faith in Jesus. He doesn't describe their, uh, the, 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 the uh, loyalty of their faith in Jesus. He just says they saw what Jesus did to Lazarus and they're going out consistently telling other people about this powerful man. And this is what we know. We know that not everybody who's telling people about Jesus here actually have received Jesus into their heart as their Savior and Lord and heart-changing King. What they have done is they've seen Him done a wonderful work, an amazing work, and they're saying, you got to see and hear this man. Just to bring it home right here for a moment, for those of us who have experienced heart change, for those of us who have experienced a home place change. Like, we've been transferred out of hell into heaven. We've we've walked out of the kingdom of darkness and have come into the kingdom of light. 
that our home now is in the presence of the Lord, how much more should we consistently and loyally and faithfully proclaim the power of the Lord Jesus? Okay, let's finish the text and then we'll bring it home here. It says, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had, done, they had heard he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, You see? You're gaining nothing. Look, the world's going after him. This is the blame game. They're blaming each other. They're bickering. They, 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 they're hatching all these plans. We've got to kill Jesus. We've got to kill Lazarus. We've got to squelch this whole thing. And none of it's working. And so they're exasperated. They're frustrated. And so they turn in on each other and offer this statement. Oh, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. It's our fault. What are we going to do? That's, that's the nature of their, their bickering there. So the plot to kill Lazarus because of what Jesus had done the plan to crown Jesus because of what he had done with Lazarus. This is, this is where I, I want us to land here, church. And this is the big idea today. This is what we find in these verses. Jesus is the misunderstood Messiah King. He is the misunderstood Messiah King who deserves not shallow celebration, but heart-level adoration. He is the misunderstood Messiah King who deserves not shallow celebration, but heart-level adoration from anyone who would claim to be His follower. Church, we, we do a disservice to all the people here when we lump them together and just say, oh, they were just fickle. Certainly, there were people in this crowd who were singing Hosanna, Hosanna, who really did ultimately love Jesus, believe in Him, give their life to Him, and, and go out and became disciple-making disciples. But at the same time, we need to understand that among these tens of thousands of thousands of people, most, most turned away from him. And many were also the very same ones four days later who were crying out in a large crowd, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Why? because he ended up not revealing himself to be the kind of king that they were expecting and that they wanted and that they've been longing for. And you see, that's why I want to tell you that Jesus is a Messiah king who's worthy more than just shallow celebration. Just everybody get excited about Jesus. Oh, he's going to do this. He's going to do that. He is this. He is that. Rah, rah, rah. Yes. This nationalistic zeal that's coming up. Oh, we're going to be better. We're going to be stronger. We're going to have our glory again. Kind of excitement about this, this made up identity of Jesus. What Jesus is longing for is for people to see him in the glory of his humility. In the glory of his selflessness and in the glory of His servanthood both to His Father and to those whom He is calling out of this world to be like Him and to look at Him 
and to revel in His sacrificial love and then to take up their crosses as well and follow the same path that He Himself followed. Jesus is misunderstood in this passage among these people. He's also misunderstood today. He was a misunderstood king that the Jews thought that they were going to get political power and military victory from. Now the fact is this, church, is that Jesus will have political power, if you want to call it that. And he will demonstrate military victory one day. Read Revelation 19. He is a conquering king clothed in white and his garments are dripped in blood because of his conquering, victorious nature. And, And the clouds will part and he will be on a white steed one day and every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess that he is in fact king of kings and lord of lords and nobody will be able to deny it. That will happen one day. But we're in that not yet state. And we are called to demonstrate that same type of humility that he himself demonstrated when he came and humiliated himself and was born of a virgin and and lived under the authority of parents and experienced all kinds of persecution and suffering and difficulties and temptations. And he calls us to follow him in that same way. Before he reigns on high, he had to suffer down low. And that's the kind of king that he is. He's a suffering, humble, lowly king who served the needs of his people and at the beck and call of his father. Now I want to ask two questions as we bring this home to us today. The first question is, is what are ways that Jesus is misunderstood today? What are ways that Jesus is misunderstood today? And I want to bring it home most specifically to people who actually claim to believe in Jesus. People who actually claim to say, yes, I'm a Christian. Or people who would check on some type of of, of a questionnaire, are you a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or atheist or whatever, that they would actually check Christian. And yet they still misunderstand Him. So here are some ways that, that people that that might be even in this building today or, or, or people that you know and love think about Jesus. And the first way is the genie in a bottle, Jesus. I don't think I have to explain that concept. But you have the, the bottle, you have the genie that comes out after you rub the bottle, and you have three wishes. And you get to ask the genie the three things that you really want most in this world, and the genie grants those wishes. There are people who live their lives with no daily connection to Jesus, no relational intimacy with Jesus. But they think about the reality, they think about this possibility that when their life gets tough or they really need something bad or they want something in some significant way, then they'll run to Jesus and they'll ask Jesus for that thing and he'll grant it, possibly, if they ask in the right way. Oh, my mom's sick. I don't want her to die. Jesus, rescue her. Or, oh, this game is so important to me. I've always wanted to win a state championship. Oh, Jesus, help us win it. Or, oh, this job is something that I've really wanted. Oh, Jesus, I'll go to Jesus. Lord, give me this. Give me this. And then what happens with the genie in the bottle, Jesus, is that when Jesus doesn't come 
and answer exactly what they request in the way that they request, they then are disappointed that Jesus isn't who he says he is. So Jenny in a bottle, Jesus. The, the second way that people misunderstand him is, is the fire insurance, Jesus. That's, they hear a message at a, at a quote-unquote revival. They hear a, they hear a message uh, every week at church, and there's a call to come down forward because you don't want to go to hell, and you don't want to go to hell. Hell is hot. Hell is forever. Hell hurts. Hell's bad. And so just come and, and receive Jesus, and you won't go to hell. Receive Jesus, and you won't have to burn forever. And people flock, and they get their fire insurance, and then they go live the same way that they lived before they heard about this fire insurance, Jesus, and nothing ever changes qualitatively about their heart or about their life or the way that they think, and they think they are Christians because they went down front to get insurance. That's not who Jesus is, and he never called people in that manner. Then you've got the role model Jesus. The role model Jesus. Oh, if we could just listen to some of the messages that Jesus preached, and if we could watch the way that He treated people, and if we could all be like that and demonstrate the kind of love that He did, the world would be a better place and everyone would be happier and healthier and more at peace. But now the fact is, that's all true. That's not all that Jesus is. Jesus says you first have to give your whole life to Me you have to deny yourself and come after me. The role model Jesus is very popular because it blunts and softens the controversial nature of Jesus' self-proclamation that he is the truth, he is the way, he is the life, and nobody gets to God except through him. Then you have the buffet bar Jesus. The buffet bar Jesus. That means you can go to Jesus and you can pick and choose what you like and what you're excited about, and then you can leave the rest of the parts about Jesus that you don't like. And so there are, there are people who are really excited about the, the prodigal son storytelling Jesus, that you know there's always a place at home. You can always run to the Father, and the fact is you can always run to the Father through the person and work of Jesus, and you can be forgiven of his sins, but they don't like the rich young ruler confronting Jesus who says, oh, you've done all those things? Well, then go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. They don't like that Jesus. That's a little bit too uncomfortable. That's a little bit too awkward. That's a little bit too self-denying. So, no, we're going to leave that one there, but we will run to Luke 15 whenever we need to. That's the buffet bar Jesus. Here's one that's very prevalent today, church. The God and country, Jesus. The God and country, Jesus. I mean, God and country. And it's just somehow this has happened over the last hundred years where we don't, we somehow associate the United States of America as almost like the second Israel. And we have all these promises from God governmentally and politically and everything else-wise, and Jesus helps us be the theocratic kingdom in this world, and we have all of these blessings through, through Jesus as a country. And we could make a whole message about this. But I can tell you this. Um, 
We can flip through the pages of Scripture from Genesis through Revelation, and you're never going to read the words United States of America in it. As a matter of fact, we are. The United States of America is in the Bible. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like We're, we're part of all the nations. That's who we are. And we get to go to other nations now that we have been reached. That's the God and country, Jesus. And then there's finally the blind to sin, benevolent Jesus. The blind to sin, benevolent Jesus. God grants me the privilege to minister to all kinds of people throughout the week, practically every week, in different forums and and cultures. And what I find a lot is that is that people don't really reject the message, the message that I that I speak about Jesus, but they also don't want to apply it to their lives. They they hear about Jesus and that he has resurrecting power, and they want to apply that resurrecting power to their job performance or their athletic performance. But when they hear that Jesus calls for purity and sacrificial love and grace to people who need it. Well, that doesn't seem to as much hit home to them and they ignore that and they think that they can ignore that. They don't even it doesn't register with them. It's it's blind to sin, love of Jesus, but you also get all the good things about Jesus that you want. Those are ways that Jesus is misunderstood today. Back in the day that we're reading in John chapter 12, it was this militaristic, nationalistic king. They misunderstood him in that way. Today, he's misunderstood. Now, let me give you some ways that we need to understand Jesus. We need to understand Jesus, first of all, as a creator king. Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, John 1, all tell us that Jesus himself is the creator of the world and the universe and that he holds these things in his hand. He is powerful and high and lifted up and that we draw breath because Jesus gives it to us. We're able to walk on ground because Jesus made that ground. He is creator king. He is servant king. He created the world. He sustains the world, and then out of love for us and a desire to glorify His Father, He enters into this world and humbles Himself and serves us by living a perfect life and dying a sacrificial death. He is a servant king, and He's a cross-bearing king. He is lowly, not because that is His... um, his nature or his character, he's lowly because he has to become like us in order to sacrifice and substitute himself for us. He is creator king, servant king, cross-bearing king. You know, this is the this is the beautiful thing about Jesus, church, is that is that Jesus spreads his arms out on the cross and he bears the weight of human sin on that cross such that if anyone believes in Him, they can be forgiven of their sins, rescued from the the consequences of their sins and have life eternal in Him. And this is what's beautiful, is that there are people today in my life and in your life 
who have a God and country king or, or, or who have yeah, who have a buffet bar Jesus, a life example Jesus, a, a life insurance Jesus, a, a, a genie in a bottle Jesus. And you know what? If they turn from that misunderstanding of Jesus and just cast themselves at the foot of the cross, then he will forgive their sins and he can become their redeeming Jesus. And, and that's what you and I, who we love the Bible, we read the Bible, we want to be faithful to the Bible, we need to keep in mind, because I can tell you this, there was a time in my life where I probably subscribed to most, if not all, of these misunderstandings of Jesus. And people loved me enough and brought me aside and discipled me well enough that I started understanding the nature of the real King. We need to do the same for people who were like me. Okay. He's a demanding king. And I I really, I labored about whether to say it that way, but he does demand from you everything that you are and everything that you have. In every one of the Gospels, he gives that same exhortation. If you want to come after him, you've got to deny yourself, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. He demands that. He demands everything that you are and everything that you have. He's a resurrecting king. He raised Lazarus. He raised himself. And one day he will raise you if you give your life to him. He's a mediating king. And I love that about him. Is that he's high and lifted up. He's at the right hand of his father. He's at the throne, in the throne room. Angels surround him. Saints surround him. And they are screaming out, yelling, singing in perfect harmony. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And at the very same time that people are and, and angels are adoring him and worshiping him, he is right now looking at your life and your circumstance and your suffering and your pain and he is going to his father on your behalf and saying, help her, help him, minister to her, minister to him. He's a returning king. He's not a pie in the sky, get us through this life until we're, we finally breathe our last kind of a good idea king. He is a returning king. Yes, the clouds will split. Yes, he will return. Yes, He will conquer. Yes, He will rule. Yes, He will reign. Yes, our bodies will be brought up out of the earth and they will meet our spirits in the air. And yes, we will bow down before Him. And yes, we will jump up to Him with hands lifted high and we will sing with the multitudes of multitudes that He is a great King. And so He will reign forever. We can call Him a reigning King. A reigning King. Because when we have been there 10,000 years, it will be like we had just begun the praise and worship of our conquering king who was first crucified but is now exalted and high and lifted up. Let's praise this king.